Bingham, I'd like to ask you some questions mainly about your earlier life in the law. And we'll start with your parents who were doctors. You went to Sedberg School in Cumbria, lovely part of the country. You then went to Balliol College in Oxford and you read history where you got a first. Now, biographers might ask about your relationship with your parents, what teacher especially inspired you, um, how hard you worked at university. Um, I'm not going to ask any of those questions unless you want to answer them, but uh, where is law in all of this? It wasn't. Um, as you've said, I read history at Oxford, and there came a point, since I never saw myself as a professional historian, where uh, one had to contemplate doing something else. Um, so the question was, what? Um, and my mother said to me, I think you do at the bar, dear. So I said, well, all right, if that's what you think, um, let's have a go. You did national service before Oxford, I think. Yeah. You're in the Ulster Rifles, and You've been quoted as saying that one of the great things about being a young officer was that you could do what you wanted in the evening as long as you're on parade in the morning. Now, I'm not going to ask you what you did in the evening, but I'm going to ask, because you then went on and said that if you hadn't chosen law, you would have chosen the army. So your mother said, why not the bar, dear, but why the bar rather than the army? I spent two years in the army, as everybody did at that time, but um, unlike a lot of people, I actually adored it um, and very, very much wanted to stay in at the end of my uh, two years um, for a whole lot of reasons, one of which was um, a superb company commander who was one of the most attractive and inspiring people I've ever met and one of only two people I think I've ever met who I would literally die for. Um, uh, but I thought one was going to be at a disadvantage because one hadn't been to Sandhurst or anything like that so I thought well the thing to do is to go to Oxford get a degree and then come back into the army uh, by the time one had been at Oxford for a bit um, that ambition had rather faded um, but I still have uh, an enormous um, uh, affection and respect for what my company commander used to call the proud profession of arms when did, you, when did your mother say, go to the bar, dear? Because you did history. Had she said that before you did history? Or no, it was, about, it was about halfway through, I think. Yes. So you, you decided you didn't want to stay on as a professional historian. Yeah. So you decided to read for the bar. Now, it's still possible, of course, in this country to read for the bar or for the other side of the profession, the sister side, without going to law school. You went off to, what, a crammer? Or yes, um, a, a crammer. It was a scandal, of course, um, really, uh, because you could do it very quickly uh, if you worked hard enough, and it was completely uneducational. Um, and I recall an occasion when um, one of the pupils in a class put their hand up and said, um, um, please, I don't understand. And the lecturer said, it doesn't matter whether you understand or not, just learn it by heart. Um, and, and that was the technique. If you 
learnt by heart everything they told you and then retailed it in answer to the right question. You passed the bar exams. And you passed the bar exams very well. And you went to Gray's Inn. Yes. Why Gray's? Because the wife of the under-treasurer was a patient of a friend of my mother's. (laughs) (laughs) The accidents of history. So you're called in 19... 69, I think. 59. Uh, sorry, 1959. I think we might have... Uh, 1957, I've got up there. 59, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise. Yeah. You, you then got a privilege in Fountain Court. Now, these days, the legal press says that the Fountain Court is one of the so-called magic circle of barristers' chambers, but you get into Fountain Court... In these days, of course, one would have to write many, many letters and get lots of support, and finally one might get a privilege. Can you tell us how you did it? Um, well, this again was sort of marginally scandalous by modern standards. Um, uh, I mean, it wasn't Fountain Court in those days, it was Leslie Scarman's Chambers, uh, and the Chambers tended to be called by the name of the Head of Chambers, or possibly the one before, and we were sometimes known as Milford Stevenson's Chambers because he was a larger-than-life character um, who uh, was remembered for, for, for a long time. Um, but it was a sort of um, watershed period when uh, Chambers, which had been very much owners' clubs up to then, um, were just becoming democratic institutions uh, with all decisions made by all the members. But it was still just about at a stage Um, when the head of chambers made a lot of important uh, decisions. And certainly Milford Stevenson uh, used to make decisions about who came into chambers with minimal consultation, I suspect. Um, And there wasn't all that much, I suspect, either with with, um, Leslie Scarman. I became a pupil in the chambers because a former member of my college who was teaching law at the weekends at Trinity in Oxford heard I was going to the bar and said, why don't you come and do pupillage in my chambers, I could fix you up with a pupillage with my own pupil master. So I said, well, that sounds very good. Um, as it happened, his old pupil master was already booked. So um, I spent an extremely convivial year with somebody else. You then got a tenancy, obviously, yes. in, in that set of chambers. Yes. And you started to practice. I have looked at the reported cases, which of course isn't exhausted by any means, but what struck me was the extraordinary range of cases you did do. Uh, there are cases on the Merchandise Marks Act, which these days would be regarded as consumer protection. You appeared in Chancery on a couple of occasions. I found one case where you did a dispute about adoption. You appeared in a matrimonial case for the Queen's Proctor. It was, it seems to be, from the reported cases, a a very practice. Was it like that? We were, um, at the bottom of chambers in those days, completely unspecialised. We would do really virtually anything. Um, A lot of it was extremely uh, menial, and um, an awful lot of it was extremely ill-paid, so that one would rush round the magistrates' courts, and if they were in central London, defending drivers who were accused of careless driving and this sort of thing, uh, for which you were paid two pounds, three and sixpence. Um, but if it was a little bit further out of London, you were paid three pounds, five and sixpence. Um, 
if you conducted a jury trial at London Sessions or the Old Bailey, I think it was about four pounds or something like that. Um, so this work was not greatly sought after, uh, with the result that um, there was a certain amount of it about um, that we were all very pleased to do. Uh, and the, the result was, uh, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the things you've quoted sound rather distinguished because you've got them out of the reports and therefore there was evidently something in them worth reporting. But um, the mass of work that one started on was not worth reporting at all. Did you start to specialise after a while as a junior? Yes. Uh, um, I mean, this suggests that it was one's own choice. Um, and it wasn't really, because it was the clerk who took all these decisions. Um, the clerk would say, I think it would be a good idea if Mr. So-and-so um, cultivated a bit of a connection in this or that or the other um, sort of corner of, 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 of practice. So it was very much in his hands. And if he was wise and shrewd and a good sort of racehorse trainer, you ended up in the right races. Mm. And you obviously did, because you started to appear in cases that were reported. You, you, you did appear as well with a number of uh, QCs, silks, so you were led in the terminology. Um, and in these reported cases, I found that you were led by the former Attorney General, Sir John Hobson, um, Michael Carr, late, later Sir Michael Carr, uh, J.P.H. Mackay in one case, who became Lord Chancellor uh, at that stage in Scottish uh, silk. Um, do you have any recollection of what it was like working with these people, their different style, whether you did most of the work, for example? Um, um, I have absolutely no recollection of John Hobson. Um, the former attorney, attorney general. general. Uh, absolutely no recollection at all. Um, I think he may have been a rather unmemorable man, but it may be my <laughs> memory that's at fault. Um, Michael Carr, um, I got to know very well later and sat with him in the Court of Appeal, and we ended up as, as good friends. Uh, I found him initially a rather putting off leader, because I well remember the first conference we had with him, where he... Um, devoted almost all the time to saying how could he be expected to win this case given the state in which it was presented to him and the mistakes that had been made already. Um, as it was, uh, we won in the Court of Appeal and weren't called on in the House of Lords, so it, was, it ended up all right. Um, but my initial exposure to Michael was not as happy as it might have been. Um, James Mackay um, was in many ways the, um, one of the shrewdest um, advocates I've ever encountered. And perhaps, can I have two little anecdotes about him, about one case? We were in the House of Lords uh, on a, a case about a long-forgotten tax called Selective Employment Tax. And it was a Scottish appeal, and I was there as the sort of English person who was meant to know about this. And at the end of the first, Lord Reed was presiding over the usual committee of five. At the end of the first day, I said to uh, James, look, there's one point that Reed made in the argument to you today um, that I think you've really got to attack um, because whether we win this case or not doesn't really matter. But if we were to lose on that point, um, it would mean that every single settlement of this tax would have to be unscrambled and it would be a complete disaster. 
um, as it was, Reed had raised this point, and James had said, I respectfully demur, and just carried on. Um, and um, I well remember um, James Mackay said to me, Lord Reed has a very, very good mind, and he will think about this point overnight, and he'll realize it's wrong, um, and he'll say nothing more about it. But he said he's got a very fertile mind, and if I start attacking it, he will think of a thousand reasons why it's right. <laughs> he said the thing to do is to say absolutely nothing, and, and that'll be the end of the point. Uh, and so I'm happy to say it was. The other technique which I recall um, from the case, um, he was perfectly happy when Reed was talking a lot, which he tended to do, um, because he said, as long as he's talking, you know where he is. But once he falls silent, then that really is worrying, because his mind may be anywhere. Um, and so the technique that he developed during these periods of silence was to cite an authority and then say, your lordships may find that rather interesting. And Reed would then say, well, why should I think that interesting? It seems to be quite obvious that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, so and, so. and then immediately, of course, you knew exactly what he was thinking. <laughs> um, who was the other person you mentioned? Oh, you didn't? No. Uh, well, I, I was going to go on and mention um, Morris Finer, who was the first graduate of the LSE who became a High Court judge. And you appeared with him in one case, a case involving a spot-the-ball competition where readers of newspapers had to mark the spot in the photograph where they thought the football was. Yes. I think you appeared for the newspaper. Yes. The newspaper. Who made millions out of this. But, but, and the whole point was that it had to be a game of skill, not chance. The, yes, exactly. And I, 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 I'm desperately trying to remember what they decided. <laughs> they decided in your favour, I think. I can't remember. <laughs> I, um, no, I think we lost. I think we lost because we tried to get leave in um, mm. the House of Lords. And I do recall that Maurice Finer drew an analogy uh, between um, a spot-the-ball competition and a chess competition. And Viscount Dillon um, said, well, if you think that, Mr. Finer, you can't know much about chess. And I think there was nobody there who wouldn't have backed Morris against um, the Viscount Dillon in a game of chess. What about Morris Viner? Do you have any firm recollections about him? Well, he was an extraordinarily intelligent, um, greatly respected, um, um, fine intellect, um, unhappily a judge for a very short time, um, but wrote a brilliant report on single mothers, yes, one parent um, um, which earned him great and justified acclaim. So that, I mean, my recollection of Morris is that he could, um, had a sort of dual persona. He could uh, be recondite and intellectual, but he was also quite a street fighter if it really came to a scrap. Um, and he was good at both these things. Maybe this is a lesson we should get across to the students. Um, you appeared, obviously, before a whole range of judges. Um, just to take two names to start with, Lord Denning and Lord Diplock, who even now are, live on in terms of their judgments. Um, I think you've written a book review of a biography of Sir Owen Dixon of the High Court of Australia, where Dixon seemed to go into court every day reluctantly, 
whereas you made the contrast with Tom Denning, who loved every moment of the law. But do you have any recollections about either or, or both of those two? Um, yes, well, both of them. Um, I mean, on the whole, the bar loved uh, appearing before Tom Denning because um, he always gave the impression of being willing to listen. He was never hidebound by authority. He didn't mind being told that what he'd said in an earlier case was quite wrong, although he didn't usually think so. Um, and it, it, it was always, almost always, almost always an agreeable experience. Um, and, I mean, he was enormously knowledgeable, very quick on the uptake, even when he was in his 80s, um, he would be assimilating the bundle of thing which he clearly hadn't read before quicker than his colleagues to right and left and had an astonishing gift, as I say, of assimilation and would say, you know, referred to page 358 of the bundle, well, how do you tie that up with page 52, that sort of thing. Um, so everybody actually... Um, tended to, to, to love appearing um, before Tom Denning. Diplock was an entirely different kettle of fish. He tended to be very remote, rather uh, uh, supercilious, extremely clever, but he would sort of sit there with a, a smile on his face as if he knew what the answer was, but he wasn't going to tell you. Um, I mean, his I mean, he is undoubtedly a great intellect, and a great deal of what he decided uh, has survived and is quoted every single day. Um, but there is a reference in his Oxford Dictionary of National Biography um, entry to his having a smile that would do credit to any shark. <laughs> I think I've got the date right up here that you became QC. You took silk in 1972. Now... These days, taking silk is a complex process. One fills out forms, and one, I think, does a self-assessment, and one gets referees. What was it like in those days? Much simpler. Um, I mean, you weren't at all sure of getting it, and various people were refused time after time. Um, and a, an awful lot of people were refused once or twice. Um, 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 I'd, I'd done a certain amount of work in the divisional court, uh, the Queen's Bench divisional court in front of the Lord Chief Justice and various Queen's Bench uh, punies. Um, so my clerk, who was very close to the old head of chambers, Belford Stevenson, who'd been there, said, you know, this fellow wants to take silk. Um, and Melford said, well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll help him and I'll try and get the chief to help him. Um, so the chief then said, well, he wouldn't actually support any individual candidate, but um, he would remember the name. Um, and I was lucky. One of the uh, important commercial cases you did as a silk was Moorgate Mercantile Twitchings, which we still use, especially these days on a stopper, but it was an important case in terms of higher purchase as well. Uh, I... I and I mentioned that case not only because it was an important commercial case that you appeared in, but also because Lord Wilberforce was there and you appeared before Lord Wilberforce a number of times. Now, yes. I guess along with uh, Lord Denning and Lord Diplock, Lord Wilberforce uh, is, is still remembered and his judgments are still cited. What recollections do you have of, of Lord Wilberforce? 
Um, in, well, enormous respect, um, because he was not only a hugely um, intelligent man, but also, in my belief, a very wise one. Um, and the two things don't always go together. So you've never really got Richard Wilberforce giving sort of clever but stupid uh, or callous um, solutions to uh, problems. I myself always found his intelligence so daunting um, as to be rather intimidating in a way. Um, but he was, um, he, he was almost always polite. I, I remember hearing a story one occasion when he said to leading counsel at four o'clock, well, he said, it's, it's four o'clock now and we must rise and we'll sit again at um, 10.30 in the morning and perhaps then, Mr. So-and-so, you would come to the point. <laughs> but he never said that to me, I'm happy to say. Um, I'll just mention another case, uh, the player Lager, and I mention this because you represented Cuba, I think. Yes. Uh, it was a sovereign immunity case, but I mention it because one of the junior counsel on the other side was the professor here of international law for a number of years and is now president of the International Court of Justice, Rosalind Higgins. You may not remember the case. I remember the case extremely well. Ah. Um, what happened was that... Um, um, uh, Fidel Castro had sold two shiploads of sugar to his Marxist brother-in-arms, um, Senor Allende, who was in power in, um, in, in Chile. Uh, the ships were, one of them was in harbor, um, unloading the sugar, and the other was just outside. Uh, when um, Pinochet toppled Allende, um, and murdered his entourage and, and, and there was a, a bloody revolution and of course the last thing that um, Fidel Castro wanted was to give all this sugar um, to this fascist dictator so he ordered his ships to leave immediately which they did um, and they were pursued by a gunboat which fired um, some shots um, through the bow of one of them I think I was instructed by your firm my recollection so. um, and the issue um, was whether um, this was um, a transaction um, in pursuance of the ordinary course of trade or whether it was an exercise of sovereign power. Um, uh, we, the Cubans, were arguing that it was an exercise of sovereign power, but the House of Lords in their wisdom eventually said it was a commercial transaction. However, I didn't argue the case in the House of Lords. We did win at some lower level, and uh, I remember... Um, the Cubans were so pleased with the judgment they translated it into Spanish and issued it as a booklet. <laughs> and what about Rosalind Higgins? Do you have memories no. of her? No, I'm sure she didn't speak. No, I think she was the second junior. Yes, yes. I th I'd rather think the Professor of International Law at Oxford was the, uh, called O'Connell. Yes, uh, no. the South Australian. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the cases that you did at this time involved appearing for the Daily Mail against the Times and Lord Rees-Mogg and Bernard Levin. Um, I don't know whether you have any recollections of that case. I mean, you, you, a huge variety of cases. You appeared for the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in another case. Yes. So uh, a huge range when you were a QC. Um, does any particular case 
Well, I have a very Stand up on your mind. friendly recollection, in a way, of D against the NSPCC. Um, the story was that um, somebody reported to the NSPCC um, that um, a young child had been the subject of abuse. Um, so they sent an inspector around um, who interviewed the mother and had a look at the child and found nothing to substantiate uh, this um, allegation at all. It so happened um, that um, the parents, were, the, the, the father was a, a merchant banker and um, his wife was a lady of irreproachable behavior towards the children. Um, however, they were terrifically upset um, by the fact um, that this accusation had been anonymously made um, and were determined to find out who had made it. And therefore, they brought an action, the sole object of which was to discover who had given this information to the NSPCC. Um, the NSPCC's position was that if they were going to start revealing the names of people who had given them information, um, people simply would not give information. Um, and albeit sometimes the information might turn out to be false, on other occasions it was true, and thank goodness people did alert them um, to the fact um, that um, dreadful things were going on. So um, it, it was a case about which uh, the NSPCC certainly felt um, very strongly. Uh, and I think we, we, we won um, in front of the master and in front of the judge, and then we lost by two to one uh, in, in the Court of Appeal. And my old head of chambers found against me, um, but Tom Denning dissented in our favor. Um, and, and it was very unpromising because we were relying on what in those days was still called crown privilege. And therefore they said, well, you're not the crown. How can a, a charitable organization arrogate to itself all the privileges that have previously been reserved to the crown? And we said, well, we're a public body discharging a public function in large measure dependent on, on um, public funds, um, apart from charitable contributions. Um, and, and the same rules ought to apply. Anyway, um, in, in the House of Lords, I'm happy to say we, we did succeed, I think, um, five, five nil. Um, and, and my abiding memory is uh, from when my former head of chamber saw me, and I was rather expecting him to congratulate me on having reversed the Court of Appeal. He said, um, you must have been very disappointed to win on the narrower of the two grounds you are. <laughs> Um, he was not the most gracious loser. <laughs> you started to do uh, more public law work. You'd started as a junior. I think you'd, uh, you became the standing counsel to the Department of Employment. Yes. Now, these days, to get on the, uh, the list of counsel who can do government work, again, one has to apply and get references and all the rest of it. Um, I'm just wondering how you got that work to start with? Um, it was the Ministry of Labour in those days, although that doesn't affect anything. Um, one was simply nominated by the Attorney General, and how he made his decision, I haven't the slightest idea. Mm. But there was only one standing counsel to the Department of Employment and, um, or, or the Ministry of Labour, and they, you were retained, so they had to consult you on anything that came along. Mm. When you're a QC, you start doing some very important public law cases. I mean, one of the ones that the students still look at is the Tameside case, 
uh, very important politically at that time, but also important these days still in terms of the boundaries to the exercise of discretion. Um, you led the Treasury junior, one Harry, now Lord Wolf. Um, I think the divisional court was with the Secretary of State. The Court of Appeal and the House of Lords was against her. Um, him. It was Fred Mulley. Oh, it was. Mm. I was wondering if um, Shelley Williams would find no. him. What, I mean, what, what, what recollections do you have of that, that particular case? Um, was that as striking as it has become at the time? Um, yes, it was, because, uh, I mean, a, a very trivial thing, but I rather think the hearing took place on a Saturday morning in the vacation in the House of Lords, which is almost uh, unheard of. Um, the interesting thing about the case, um, it was all to do with selective education um, at a certain school in Tameside. And um, it was all very urgent because the parents were saying, look, we don't know what uniform we need to buy for our children in September. Uh, and so it did call for a rather urgent decision. And um, as I learned subsequently, the Solicitor General said to the Secretary of State, well, obviously, what affected your mind when you made your decision was so-and-so and so-and-so. And um, the Secretary of State said, well, actually, that isn't uh, what influenced me. Um, rightly or wrongly, um, I, I thought I shouldn't take any account of that. So I, I did not rely on that in making my decision. So the attorney said, well, it would be a much stronger case for you if you did. And um, the Secretary of State said, well, I'm sorry, but... Um, I, I didn't take account of that, and I don't want the case conducted on the basis that I did. So the attorney um, declined to act, and that was really why it was me leading Harry Wolf rather than the attorney, I think. Yeah. The, the other thing is that although we lost, uh, my opponent and I, um, you know, after the hearing, discussed the likely outcome, and we both thought it could be 3-2 either way. And the one thing we, neither of us thought was that it was five love um, to him. You said before this interview that I chose cases where you lost. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> not, not all of them. I was also showing you beforehand this yellowed copy, an extract from the Guardian Weekly, which reports on the report you did on the sanctions against what was then called Rhodesia. And I was pointing out to you that the, the Guardian the extract says the draft report of an official inquiry by Mr. Geoffrey Bingham QC, an entirely different person, into sanctions busting by the oil companies over Rhodesia has come into the hands of the Guardian. Um, but that was an important report that you did on the issue in the late uh, 1970s. Uh, I don't know whether you want to say anything about that. What happened, David Owen was the Foreign Secretary at the time, and um, he fairly recently appointed, travelling around Africa, um, and everywhere he went, um, people said, well, how can we think that the United Kingdom is sincere about anything when it's done nothing to address the fact that its oil companies were breaking sanctions throughout the period um, that Rhodesia was in a state of, of, of rebellion? Um, and this was particularly stirred up by um, a character called Tiny Rowland, whose company had been successfully prosecuted 
um, for um, breaching sanctions. And he thought it was monstrous that his company uh, should um, be pro uh, prosecuted when the real villains hadn't been prosecuted at all. So eventually, with a great flourish, David Owen said, very well, I will appoint an inquiry, um, and it will go into all this and discover how the oil um, got to uh, Rhodesia. So he wrote to Tiny Rowland and said, I hope I can count on you for your fullest cooperation. And Tiny Rowland wrote back and said, I will give you no cooperation, whatever, um, which remained his attitude for about the next um, six months or so. Um, the interesting thing from my point of view, basically it was uh, an inquiry into Shell and BP because the American companies wouldn't have anything to do with it and one had no power to compel them and the French wouldn't have anything to do with it either. Um, and uh, I mean, some people present may think this is naive in the extreme, but my own belief is um, that it wasn't really until BP gathered all their papers from all their subsidiaries throughout Africa and elsewhere that they appreciated exactly what had happened. I don't think myself that anybody in head office up to then had appreciated. Uh, but as soon as BP appreciated what the score was, um, they wanted to come clean. They were still, um, there was still a golden share owned by HMG, um, and they regarded it as their duty to be um, cleaner than clean. So they wanted to tell me all about what they had discovered. Fascinating thing for me to, to discover was whether um, they and Shell were acting in conjunction and deciding, you know, what together they were going to tell me, because, of course, that would have been very good. And it, from their point of view, um, it became very obvious to me very early on that there was no communication between them, whatever. Um, they were as if, you know, they were, they were in a state of warfare, which I suppose they were. Um, but we thought um, we did discover what had happened. Yes. And in point of fact, Tiny Rowland's attitude um, changed halfway through, and for some reason that I never defined, he decided it, it was helpful to him to be helpful to us. Um, and so he arranged for Dr. Salazar's man in Mozambique uh, to come and give evidence and tell us exactly how he had organized um, the filling of the oil trucks in Lorenzo Marx, um, posted with um, addresses in South Africa, and then at a certain point they switched the points and sent them up to Bulawayo instead. Did you go to Africa, or did you simply do it on the documents? No, I was told um, that I was known grata everywhere. Um, I thought they would let me go to Zambia, but they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. South Africa said I would be subject to arrest if I went there. Mm -hmm. um, Zimbabwe, as it hadn't become, was still in the state of rebellion, so I wouldn't have been welcome there. So there was nowhere I could go, but I did ask. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, did, I went to Portugal, um, because Portugal was the colonial power, had ceased to be the colonial power. And I went and saw an extremely attractive man in uh, Lisbon um, and asked him if I could have access to the sort of documents and he said well when we gave away our empire which they did extremely quickly all the records were put first of all in the barracks and then they wanted the barracks for something else so they put them in a church and then he said they were moved out of the church into the street and he said they blew around and goodness knows if we can trace it but we'll try uh, and then I waited in, for months with nothing happening and then to my amazement uh, an envelope arrived full of documents which were exact counterparts of what I'd been supplied by a tiny Roman, which made me persuaded that they were genuine. Mm -hmm. 
You were appointed a judge in 1980. How did that happen? Uh, the same way I think it, it usually happens. I mean, get an approach. Um, I said, not this financial year, please. Um, he said, very well, I'll ask you again after Easter. Um, and he did. This was Lord Hailsham. Yes, yes. We haven't got much more time, but today in commercial contracts, we were dealing with one of your judgments that you decided once you got into the Court of Appeal, the Interpoto case. And I ask this in a way because I, it's self-interest. <coughs> that judgment, as I pointed out to the students today, uh, stands out because you refer there to good faith. And it's not mentioned by the other judge. But there's a, a doctrine which I'm sure the, the bar hadn't mentioned to you, but you took it up and you then develop an argument about how good faith seems a number of English law doctrines. My self-interested question is, how do you write your judgments? What's the key to good judgment writing? But in particular, how did you get this notion of good faith when it's not mentioned by the advocates? Uh, well, I clearly encountered it in some foray into the civil law. I've actually, as it happens, always been rather a believer in good faith. Um, not just in the sense of not deceiving people, but actually in the sense of a sort of positive duty to come clean. I know it's all very controversial territory, that. But I, I don't know that I can um, answer your question about good judgment writing. It's a very individual thing. Um, I think it's very desirable if people end up the first two or three paragraphs knowing what the point is. Do, do, you, do you tend to write longhand? Do you dictate? Do you do it straight away? <coughs> My own uh, unreconstructed approach to this is uh, to do it longhand because I much prefer um, writing it out than dictating it. And I then found that my secretaries much preferred reading my handwriting to listening to the tape, so since both of us preferred that. Um, and yes, I usually try and do it straight away yes. because of a bad memory. Um, on the board, we, we see that you then became the Master of the Rolls and then Lord Chief Justice. We haven't got time to um, go into that, but... Was it a surprise, especially the appointment as Lord Chief Justice? Because at the time there was a thought that it had to be someone who would practice primarily in the criminal law area. Um, yes, it was certainly a surprise um, for the very reason that you, you give. Um, it had never occurred to me um, uh, as a possibility. Um, and it hadn't occurred to many other people. Um, and there was a lot of hostility um, in certain circles because um, uh, people felt that to have somebody who wasn't a sort of mainline criminal practitioner was a very bad idea. And how could somebody be expected to pick it up if they hadn't spent their whole lives doing this? Um, when James Mackay, who was the Lord Chancellor by then, um, put the proposal to me, um, I said, well, I would want to spend at least half my time uh, doing something other than crime. And he said, well, that's exactly what I'd like you to do. Um, so, I mean, that was a happy, happy match in a way. But um, my immediate predecessor had 
really done nothing but crime, and um, his predecessor by the end had done really nothing but crime, partly because there was a lot of it, partly because they were both very good at it. Um, but it isn't something I've spent all the time doing. My final question is this, and I'll start with this anecdote which you've told before, um, or at least it was told by Peter Brook, I think, that you were attending Evensong in Wales with your daughter, and on the other side of the aisle there are two parishioners, so there are only four of you in the church. The vicar says, with only three or four people gathered, do you really require a sermon? You gesture to the other two, and uh, one of them says, don't mind. Um, but Wales, if I have uh, got it right, seems to run through your life. You've had a cottage in Wales. When you became Lord Chief Justice, you added and Wales to the official uh, title, so it became Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. Um, you're president of the Hay Festival. Um, does any of this have a bearing on your life in the law, this hinterland, as it were? Well, we have had a house in Wales for um, 40-something years and spent all the time we possibly can there, um, including school half-terms, bank holidays, holidays, and now uh, weekends. Um, the and Wales arose as a result of my being asked to open um, a court, a new court in Swansea, and they wanted to put up a plaque and um, they consulted me about what this thing should say. And this was, I think, 98 or so at a time when Welsh nationalist feeling, certainly in Swansea and the further reaches of Wales, was running quite high. And it seemed to me um, a more insulting thing um, than to turn up and say, unveiled by the Lord Chief Justice of England, was just really grotesque. Um, and so um, I consulted the Lord Chancellor and said, what about adding Anne Wales? And he said, that sounds a very good idea. I'll come back to you. And he then came back and said, yes, um, I'm in favour. Um, so um, it ended up with a very, very happy um, thing that in Welsh, England and Wales is Cymru Loga, Wales and England. Lord Bingham, you've very kindly agreed to answer a few questions from the audience. Um, and so for about ten minutes, we will ask a number of people to contribute if they want. Um, I think, uh, shall I do this here? Um, let's take, say, three or four questions and then we can accumulate those together. So, anyone want to ask a question of Lord Bingham? Tarek? You might want to identify yourself as well. Uh, my name's Tariq. I'm a new lecturer at the LSE. Um, I just wanted to ask, in terms of when you went um, onto the bench as, as a judge in the Queen's Bench Division, um, you're obviously enjoying a very successful career um, as a barrister. What, had you already resolved to follow the path of, of a judge by that time, or was it something that you hadn't considered until the suggestion was made? Sort of what impelled me to become a judge? Yeah. Um, It used to be quite unusual to say no. Um, and I mean, there were always well 
known cases of individuals who for some reason or another um, had said to the Lord Chancellor, well, thank you very much for asking me, but, but um, I'd sooner stay in practice. But there weren't all that many. And um, I think most people, um, despite um, the loss of income, um, regarded it um, as the sort of natural combination of a career at the bar. Um, people do it with varying degrees of enthusiasm, but um, there are some people who feel like heavyweight boxers who just can't bear to go back into the ring. Um, and I think that can happen to advocates. It, um, and in particular, I think as you get more senior, the cases get longer, which makes them more burdensome and in a sense more worrying, particularly if they're going wrong. Um, and I found I liked my clients less as time went on and they got richer. Got on very well with criminals in earlier days. What about a student? Yeah. Just we'll wait until we get the microphone so everyone can hear. Do you want to identify yourself as well? Yes, my, my name is Kevin Holder. I'm a first-year student. Uh, as a student, I'm always being asked, you know, why did you choose law? You said that your mother obviously was in favour, but what was it that, that really interested you uh, with regard to the law? I'd had a very limited experience in the Army of representing as a, as a young officer at a court-martial, a soldier who was accused of some crime or other, um, and in addition, it used then to be a sort of standard part of one's um, training to have lectures on uh, military law and um, Queen's regulations and one thing or another, um, and I suppose I always rather enjoyed that, and certainly I enjoyed the experience of um, um, representing somebody, and it seemed to go quite well. Um, the, the history course... Uh, also involved um, a component of what I think were called constitutional documents, which were really just sort of reports of legal cases, lots of them. Um, many of them, you know, high-profile cases still cited. Um, and I liked that. So I suppose um, I felt it was a congenial subject. Um, and I was certainly attracted uh, by the sort of advocacy side of it. There's Does that answer the question? Thank you. There's someone over there. Yes. Uh, Leslie Moran, Professor of Law from the School of Law at Birkbeck College. Lord Bingham, um, legal, uh, sorry, judicial biographies seem to be rather underdeveloped in the English context. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be the case? Um, legal biography generally. Well, judicial biography in particular. Well, I think it's because judges live very boring lives on the whole. <laughs> um, I mean, it usually is a case of sort of one damn case after the other. And while they're fascinating to you, they can bore the pants off anybody else. Um, but I think you're right. I, I don't know that many people have written... I mean, Tom Denning uh, was something of an exception because he made his life story um, uh, quite exciting. Um, but on the whole, I think people need some other dimension to make their lives very interesting. Michael Carr um, wrote a fascinating um, memoir of his life, which initially um, went up to 
his becoming a judge, I think, or taking silk, becoming a QC, and um, he wasn't going to finish it. Um, and everybody said, oh, do finish it, Michael. You know, the first bit is so good. And he was very reluctant um, and eventually did produce a second volume. Um, but everybody, I think, thought he'd been right um, to confine it to one in the first place because the second one wasn't nearly so interesting. There's someone down here, but I haven't been looking up here. Is, was there anyone up the top? Well, there's a question down here in the front. Yes. Just, just wait, wait until the, you get the microphone, yeah. Auden, whose centenary we are commemorating this year, once wrote, yet law-abiding scholars write, law is neither wrong nor right. Law is only crime, punished by places and by time. Would you care, Lord Bingham, to comment on those lines? I don't think I could say anything very wise or memorable about them. You are, you do read uh, Dr. Johnson. And your, and your I certainly story. read Dr. Johnson, yes. I, I, I'm not quite sure I heard the question from there. We'll take that on notice. Um, there's someone over the back there, I think. Who was it? I saw a hand over there, I saw two hands there, and then two in the front. Let's take them all together, and then I think we might, um, we might include. Hi, my name's um, Michael Edwards. I just finished reading history, and now thinking of going to law as well. <coughs> um, I just wanted to know what you thought about the trend towards specialization at the bar, given that your experience was very much to practice in a lot of different areas build up experience for a range of different subjects. Now the trend is very much towards greater specialization. Yeah, specialization, yeah. yeah. And then down here, over in the front somewhere, do I see a hand? No? Okay. And then I think there were two down the front here. Down. Ah. And Professor Collins down the front. I, I just wanted to ask you what um, the senior law lord does that makes them different from the other law lords. So, are you a boss? You tell them what to think, uh, what to do. Could you just give us some insights into that one. Okay. Was there anyone else? Oh, there are a couple over here. Uh, Lord Bingham, most uh, Joe Merkins from the LSE Law Department. Um, a lot of biographies these days are ghostwritten. Who would you choose as your ghostwriter? <laughs> There's someone next. Lord Bingham, I am an LLM student at the LSE. I was wondering, is there any advice you'd give to those of us aspiring to a career at the bar? One, one more over there. I think we might conclude. Yes, please. Yes. Um, my name's Helen Tong, College of Law. Um, I'm just interested, what is the most um, significant aspect for you in your practice um, and as being a judge um, in terms of the developments of European law and how you've managed to sort of change from um, or looking at UK um, UK legislation, statutes, and referring to European Courts of Justice. Thank you. Anyone else really dying to ask a, a final question? Okay. 
Um, well, the first question about specialization. Um, I, I, I think specialization is with us, whether we welcome that fact uh, or not. Um, the law has got steadily more complicated, and um, if people are going to consult a barrister, they want a barrister who they think um, um, is expert in this particular field, and they feel exactly the same about their uh, solicitor. Um, certainly, so far as the, the bar is concerned, I rather regret this, um, because I think um, that lots of these trivial things that one started were extraordinarily valuable experience, and there's actually nothing harder um, than representing a driver whose account doesn't overlap at any single point with what the other driver says. Um, so that you do have to think on your feet and you can't go home and write three hours of speech after a lot of, uh, of, of, of thought. But um, it's no use, I think, harking back, even uh, if one wanted to, to some golden age that will not um, return. Um, the senior law lord um, presides in whatever constitution he's um, sitting in. Um, he is, I suppose, so far as anybody is, um, um, the person who's looked to um, on problems of administration. Um, he, um, with the number two, um, is um, involved in deciding what judges sit on what cases, which um, the Lord Chancellor used to do in the old days, but happily doesn't do anymore. Um, and this is done to try and make sure you get suitable panels for the right cases, rather than, um, as I can assert, with complete sincerity, rather than to try and procure that you get a majority in favor of whatever you happen to think should be the result of the case. Um, I'm absolutely foxed as to who I would um, approach as a ghostwriter, um, but if you can suggest to me some writer of imaginative fiction who would um, um, advise a young barrister um, I, I think uh, the best advice I could give and it's not very dramatic advice is to be prepared to work yourself to death um, I mean some people are terrifically clever and, and can do all these things very effortlessly most of us are, are not that clever um, and, and just need to work extremely hard um, and on the whole, I thought that was the single most important key to success um, at the bar. Um, so far as sort of um, specialization and, and, and European law are concerned, it is, of course, the case um, that for people as, um, as old as me, um, there are new subjects that have been invented since one um, qualified. Um, and what would now be learnt and taught as human rights is certainly one of them. And um, European law, of course, was a completely closed book in um, the 1950s for a whole lot of obvious reasons. Um, uh, I, I guess one has just um, um, had to try and learn these subjects as best one can, little by little, on the hoof. Um, um, but a, a former... Um, Advocate General who was at the bar before going to Luxembourg um, always Francis Jacobs I mean my first ruling in a European case was please ask the solicitors to instruct Francis because he could then tell one what the case was all about Lord 
Bingham, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Michael Smith, and on behalf of the partners of Clifford Chance, it's my happy task to state the patently obvious by saying we've all had a treat tonight. When Professor Cranston asked me if my firm would be uh, willing to partner with the LSE in this ambitious and uh, remarkable series of lectures, I uh, agreed immediately with some enthusiasm, uh, but only in principle. It was after that that I read the small print and saw that the third and final lecture in this series, which will be held here in a fortnight's time, is called, Is the Life of Solicitors Necessarily Boring? <laughs> whilst I thought it would be a courageous exercise in counterintuition, for the largest solicitors firm in the land uh, to be seen actively to supporting that lecture when, uh, when, when given the uh, choice, courage failed me and I said to Professor Cranston that um, if I was able to make a vote of thanks, I'd prefer to do it at the beginning of the series <laughs> rather than at the uh, end. Um, plainly, ladies and gentlemen, all of us who practice law could say that we have lives in law, but then so could career criminals incarcerated at Her Majesty's pleasure. Plainly, some lives in the law are different, and we have learnt tonight uh, as to why uh, some lives are indeed uh, unique, and Lord Bingham's professional career exemplifies uh, uh, that. The last time on which I saw him um, speak to an academic audience was when he gave the David Williams lecture at Cambridge last autumn, not speaking about a life in law, but the rule of law. Different subject, same characteristic, packed house, rapt attention, much taking of notes, and uh, it's uh, no surprise uh, why. I've learned something tonight, and uh, those of you who are already practitioners will, I hope, um, follow me in pursuing the Mackay Gambit, which is, of course, as you've heard, when posed a killer argument by the tribunal, say that you respectfully disagree, because, of course, we're not allowed to use words like demur anymore, and pass swiftly on and hope that the judge will change his mind overnight or forget. So I, I, I may put this into practice in the coming days. But I hope that before you all... Uh, retire to refreshments on the third floor on the third floor of this building if you join uh, with me in thanking Lord Bingham for such an entertaining discussion Thank you.